hey, thanks for joining us in person. See more and more folks starting to feel comfortable coming back to campus. That's great. Uh, also, thanks for joining us online. Hey, I just was uh, reminded of something just the other day that this Saturday, September the 5th, will actually be the four-year anniversary since uh, Robin and I came to be pastor and first lady at First Baptist Burles. Yeah. So uh, we celebrate that. We didn't know if anybody else celebrated it, but we, we, we're celebrating that fact. So uh, by your claps, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you for that. Um, and I don't do that to self-promote. I hope you understand. I do that so you have time to get those gift cards in the mail. Because <laughs> I know you don't want to wait till last minute. I, I know I don't. So, <laughs> no. Uh, seriously, though, just thinking about that four years, man, what a ride it has been. And just caused me to think about the other churches where we served. My first church to pastor was Sunset Canyon Baptist in Dripping Springs, just outside of Austin, southwest of Austin. It's known as the gateway to the hill country, Dripping Springs. And so a great church, a great experience, learned a lot there. Uh, learned what it was like to live out in the country, learned what 4-H was all about. We learned a lot uh, moving out to Dripping Springs. One of the things I learned about was the Emmaus community. I'd never heard of that before. Uh, the Emmaus community, it, it's a, a movement, it's a spiritual retreat that really started with the Catholic Church. Uh, back in the 70s, it was kind of became more of a Protestant movement, mainly with the Methodist Church. And so there was a whole, it's very big out in the hill country in that area. And so I found more about it and found about the spiritual retreats. And, and my goal, I just want to be able to teach there or speak there at these different retreats. And so in order to do that, I had to go through a walk to Emmaus. I had to become a pilgrim and experience what everyone experiences on those retreats. Uh, so you have a retreat for men, you have a retreat for women. And so I signed up to go on my first walk to Emmaus. And the whole purpose is just to kind of get you away from the normal rhythms of life. We went to a retreat center. They take your watch away, so you're not attached to any time frame. And you're just kind of going with what they experience. It's time of enlightenment, self-reflection, and really a time to draw closer to God. And so went through that whole experience. Now, mine, uh, my walk was at a Jewish retreat center. So in addition to all the stuff we were doing with Walk to Emmaus, we got to eat kosher meals, which was terrible. <laughs> you know, just to be honest, uh, I didn't like the kosher meals, uh, and I've not gone back to kosher meals, by the way. So, but that whole experience was really that purpose of getting away, being enlightened to the truth of God, drawing closer to God, and just a time to look inside your life and see what is going on there. And so that experience was birthed out of the original walk to Emmaus. And that's the story we're going to look at today. The two disciples, after Jesus' death, were making their way, way back home, back to Emmaus, when they encountered Jesus. So it's a very significant story because of the resurrection of Jesus, but also what Luke is trying to do. As we read this story, it becomes very clear that Luke is inviting us to join in this journey. He's actually inviting us to walk down the road to Emmaus, to experience Jesus like these two disciples. I also discovered in studying for this sermon that that's exactly what the famous artist Rembrandt was trying to do in his depiction of Emmaus. Now, he painted several different Bible stories, Bible characters, and in this one that we're going to see this morning, he was painting the depiction of Jesus there in Emmaus with the two disciples eating the meal. But he also paints one and draws one of walking down the road to Emmaus. But what's interesting is Rembrandt actually followed Luke's kind of idea here. He echoes what Luke is trying to do 
and inviting us to be one of the disciples because Luke doesn't name one of the disciples and Rembrandt doesn't paint the face of one of them. All right, so we're going to look at that this morning. I think it's interesting. I hope you will too. (laughs) And so Luke writes this, and he does this several ways to invite us into the journey. The way he writes it, the wording that he uses, and the imagery, and the lack of information that he gives us about this one disciple. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Now I'm going to read out of the New King James Version today. New, normally I read out of NIV. This will be New King James, so you may not have that translation, uh, but it will be on the screen. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13. Here's how Luke records the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. After he said to them, what kind of conversation is it that you are having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those whose name was Cleopas answered to him and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So again, Luke is very poignant in the way that he writes this whole story because he has a purpose. The first purpose is to invite us into this journey with these disciples to encounter Jesus in the way that they did. But it's also to remind us in very stark imagery that we need a revelation from God. We needed a revelation from God. Every one of us who have been created, which includes all of us, by the way, needs to know of God. This is, this is how Luke describes God. God is a revelatory God. God desires to reveal himself to us. Now, he does it through his Holy Spirit. He does it through his word. He does it through other people. He's very creative in the way he reveals himself to us. But God of the universe desires that all of us know him and follow him. So his choice, his initiation, is to reveal himself to us. He loved us first, right? And so he reveals himself to us. And this is what Luke is making very clear to us, that our God is a God of revelation because we need this word from God. And the, word, the reason I chose the New King James Version, because that word behold in verse 13. This translation has, most translations don't have the word behold there, but this word is significant because there's no other word like it. There's no word in our English language that's equivalent to this Greek word for behold. There's no word in any other language that is equivalent to what Luke is portraying in this word word behold. In the original Greek, it is a revelatory word. It is a word of revelation. It is an angelic word. You remember the Christmas story where the uh, angels appeared to the shepherds? Remember what they said? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That word behold, angels revealing to the shepherds what had just happened. That's the same idea here. 
Behold. So, in other words, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you because it's important for your salvation. And so he goes on with the story, understanding this word. Two disciples are walking down the road. The risen Savior appears. We know this. They don't. They don't recognize him. Somehow Jesus disguised himself in such a way he was, the image was not clear to them who he was. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a phantom. This is a real person, a resurrected Jesus, but they don't know it yet because they don't recognize him. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in the account here, this is the first post-resurrection encounter that he writes about. He, he takes us to the tomb, but he just talks about the tomb being empty and the angels telling the women. He doesn't tell the story where Mary encountered Jesus. So this is the first human encounter of Luke's writing of the post-resurrected Lord. And so he invites us into the journey. In fact, if you study the original language, the way he writes it just kind of sounds like you're walking down a road. The punctuation, all how he says it, and he writes like this. You're just kind of taking a Sunday afternoon stroll down the road. He, he invites us into this experience. Probably for you, a lot of us, at times of stress and times of anxiety, certainly that these disciples were experiencing. Sometimes we, I just got to take a walk, right? I just need to get outside and take a walk. And certainly they were walking, but they were walking home. No urgency to get back home. They were devastated. They were trying to figure out what just happened these last three days in Jerusalem. And so Jesus encounters them during this road on this journey. Again, Luke introduces, he doesn't introduce any of the disciples at this point. Again, this is a tactic he's using to invite us into this journey. He only tells us what they are doing. Then he reveals to us that these two disciples are blinded to the truth. Jesus is there. He's walking. He appears seemingly out of nowhere and starts to walk down this road with them and begins to ask them questions. So we see these disciples, they're just trying to make sense of everything. This is not what they planned. They followed Jesus because they thought he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what they said. We thought he was the Messiah. He was going to put Israel back on top. He was going to be a mighty warrior. He was going to get them out of Roman rule and set Israel back on top and conquer all of the nations, and now he's dead. The whole, this guy they put all their faith and hope in for three years and followed and believed and trusted. Now he's dead. What in the world just happened? I think we can relate to this in some degree in light of the pandemic we've all been experiencing because it's been a time of suffering, worldwide suffering, losing jobs, losing relationships, losing normalcy in life. We, we all now know what it's like to lose, to experience loss. And typical in the human experience, whenever we experience suffering or pain or loss, it is human nature to begin to question God, usually in two areas. First of all, is God loving? Second of all, is God sovereign? People who are not believers will ask this question of God. You say your God is a God of love. Why would a God of love allow innocent children to die? Why would a loving God allow war? Which really kind of connects to the next question. If God is really sovereign, if God is really in control, why would he allow a worldwide pandemic? Why would he allow this virus to actually happen? Why would he allow? If he is in control, why does it seem the world is out of control? Especially my world. I think in a time of pain and suffering, it's, it's normal to go there and ask those questions. Even as Christ followers, I think we wrestle with those questions sometimes because the answer is not necessarily black and white. 
the answer, the peace that we have with, without answer really is our faith. Our faith relies on an understanding of God that may not seem clear to our human eyes, may not seem clear in the moment. I don't know exactly what these disciples were feeling, but it's definitely possible that was their question. If Jesus was the Messiah, or, or at least the ruler, they thought he was going to be, why is he dead? And does that mean God really isn't in control? Is he not really going to fulfill his promises that we were taught as children? And so, but what's so cool about this, they're discouraged, all hope is lost, and that's exactly when Jesus shows up. And that's Jesus, right? That's what he does. Now, he's always here. He's everywhere. But it's in those moments that we are at the rock bottom. We are fully discouraged, fully despair. Then we have to remember that Jesus is near. It's so important for us because, and let's be honest, right? As Christians, we still struggle with some doubts. We still have some questions about God and what he's doing. But the good news is even those questions we have as followers of Jesus do not repel Jesus from us. It's in those moments that maybe we sense him drawing even more near to us. But that's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of Jesus. He doesn't run away from us when we don't have it figured out. He doesn't run away from us when we don't handle it correctly. He actually draws near to us. In the midst of pain and suffering, our God is near us. Amen. Sorry, I didn't hear you. You had your mask on, right? That's the truth of Jesus, is it not? That's, that's who Jesus is. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've thought. Yes, I don't, but he does, and it doesn't repel him. It may send me running from you, but it's not going to send Jesus running. He draws near. That's the significant part as Luke paints this. He draws near. And he asks this question in the original. It says, what are these words that you're hurling at each other? So we see that these two disciples, they're actually arguing. They're in a debate. As New King James says, they are reasoning. So they're arguing together about what just happened and what's next. Why? Because they are in the midst of fear. What fear does to us, oftentimes, it makes us angry and bitter. When we are afraid, when we don't know how this pandemic is going to work out, when we don't know how we're going to handle it now that we've lost our job, we become angry and bitter, mostly at God, but also at the people who love us. Again, that's a human response to pain and suffering. And so Jesus confronts them at this. Just what are these words that you're hurling at one another? You're arguing this. And his whole purpose is not to pick on them. His whole purpose is to bring a calm to their storm. Again, very Jesus-like. That's what he does. He brings calm in the midst of storm. They still don't recognize him. They don't understand what he's doing. I've been there too, right? I know Jesus is here. I just can't see him right now. It doesn't feel like he's in control. That's where faith kicks in to remind us that he is. And so his question, what are you arguing about, actually causes these disciples to go back to the last few days. He reminds them of their pain. He reminds them of the source of their pain. Why? That sounds cruel, doesn't it? When you've gone through a bad experience, the last thing you want to do is go back and relive it. But Jesus is bringing them to a point of brokenness. Because their whole attitude, their whole 
worldview, their whole future is based on the events that they witness with their eyes that Jesus died. But Jesus is about to tell them and show them he is much bigger than that. He is much bigger than your circumstances. He is much bigger than that thing or that person who caused pain and suffering in your life. He is much bigger than you, right? But he had to get them back to that point to confront it so they could see the power that he offers to us. And so he goes through it, and the wording that Jesus usually here historically is used for philosophers as they reason together and philosophize together. So Jesus is basically saying, maybe with a little smirk, all right, you philosophers, what are you talking about? Where have you, what conclusions have you arrived using your own brilliance? Using your own worldly experience and your knowledge, what have you, where have you arrived in your thinking about what just happened? Because again, in stark contrast reminds us, why didn't these guys cry out to God? Why were they trying to figure this out on their own? Why do you try to figure it out on your own? <laughs> right? Okay, you tell me your wisdom on the worldwide pandemic. We fall short. But we know and trust and follow and believe in the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful. Why do we not cry out to him first? It's usually after we have philosophized, after we have reasoned, that we cry out to him. And so that's where we see these guys. And then Cleopas asked this question, you know, where have you been, dude? How come you're the only one who doesn't know what just happened? So here, and here's Luke's strategy again. Cleopas is one disciple, but he doesn't tell us who the other disciple is on purpose. By not telling us who the other disciple is, he is inviting us to be that disciple. Luke is writing in such a way to say, I could have been that disciple. You could have been that disciple. Based all your ideas on what you've seen, not trusting in the power and the glory of God to see beyond your circumstances, you and I have been there. It's the same thing that Rembrandt does when he paints the painting of the two disciples, Adam Maeus, at the dinner table with Jesus. In this painting, you can see where Rembrandt paints the image of Jesus. Now, this, the original painting is hang, hanging in the, the, the Louvre in Paris, or if you're from Texas, the Louvre. Right? So here's Jesus in the middle. He's being revealed. You see the, the kind of halo around him. You see the glory shining around him. You see Cleopas sitting at the chair. Now, this guy is just kind of a waiter waiting tables uh, without a mask on, by the way. Um, and the other, other disciple, you don't see his face. This is the one that is not named here. This is Rembrandt's depiction of what Luke is trying to do to show us that this could be us. We could be that other disciple. So that intrigued me. It may not be interesting to you at all, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. So Rembrandt painted, in fact, he painted self-images in 90 of his paintings. The most significant, the most popular was the one, The Rising of the Cross. In this picture, we, we have Rembrandt because he was so overwhelmed by the gospel that he painted many Bible stories, many Bible characters. And so he paints in this story where the cross of Jesus is being raised. He's been nailed to the cross, and there's a group of people raising the cross up for Jesus, right? And if you look at this picture, you see right there in the middle, one's highlighted. He's got a little artist beret. 
That's Rembrandt. That's a self-image of Rembrandt. They're raising the cross of Jesus after he's been nailed to the cross. The reason Rembrandt does this is much for the same reason that he painted that Emmaus picture, reflecting what Luke has been saying. Rembrandt is saying, that could have been me at the cross. Rembrandt was so overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he realized that it was his sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't Jesus' sin, it was his sin. And by that, he's painting that picture, saying to every one of us, we could have easily been in that same picture because it is all of our sin that led Jesus to die on the cross. It's because we are sinners, because we are sinful, that Jesus died on the cross. Any one of us could have been there on the hill of Golgotha. And by that, he's saying, When people argue about God being hateful or being mean or not being in control or being angry, point him to the cross because in that image we see that God is love. You can wonder where evil and suffering come from. You can wonder why God allows what he allows, but you cannot get past the image of the cross where God's love is demonstrated in vivid color. That's his point. That's Luke's point for the same. Just like Rembrandt included every person in that picture, Luke is including every one of us in this walk to Emmaus. We could have been that same disciple, needing to be enlightened, needing to know the truth, being blinded because of what we thought or because of circumstances, being blinded to the truth But just like those two disciples on the road, Jesus came to reveal himself. Jesus speaks to you today to reveal himself to you, that you might know who he is. Now, the way Luke writes this, at this point, he's invited us to be a disciple. In some sense, he's moving us outside the picture to look in because we can look and say, guys, that's Jesus. (laughs) That's Jesus you're walking with. Did it not kind of dawn you, this guy, as he speaks, as he appears, that maybe there's something different about him? Because we get to see that this is Jesus, although they didn't. And then in kind of a weird fashion, they begin to tell Jesus about Jesus. Anybody ever done that to you? Tell you about you? (laughs) Or tell a story about you with you standing right there? A couple of months ago, Robin and I got to fly up and see our daughter Morgan in Oregon. She works in Medford, Oregon, managed enterprise budget Alamo Rent-A-Car. Because she rents cars, there's a, a, a famous person, uh, Jim Belushi, you may not know him. Jim and John Belushi were brothers. John died years ago, Saturday Night Live. Jim had a sitcom called According to Jim. Well, he has a house out there outside of Medford, Oregon. He lives on a farm. And he got to know Morgan because he rented cars from her, and so they became friends. And he invited her out to his place to hang out with his family, and so they become good friends. So one of the times they were talking, and uh, Jim said, hey, tell me about your parents. And she goes, well, my dad is a Southern Baptist preacher. And he goes, oh, man, I love Southern Baptist preachers. I didn't know if that meant to chew them up or, or I like to hear, I don't know. But he said, next time they're out, invite them to come to the farm. I'd love to meet them. So, all right, so we go on the next plane we could. We get out to go hang out with Jim Belushi. So we go to his place, and it's just like, like he's part of the family. He's just so cool. He's so chill. He just invites us. He shows us around. Rob and I get in the gator with him. He drives us around the farm. He's talking all this stuff. They cook lunch for us outside, and it's just, it's just really cool. And so we spent time there, and there's, here's a picture as proof. 
right? So there's Jim, there's me and Robin uh, hanging out at his farm, socially distanced, as you can tell, right? So that's him. And so we're telling this story to a couple, and uh, we finish the story, and another couple walks up. And this couple goes, oh, oh, you got to hear what just happened to Ronnie and Robin. you got to hear about going to see Jim Belushi. And then they begin to tell our story. They went through everything that we just told them. Rather than saying, hey, Ronnie and Robin, tell them the story, they told our story. We're standing right there. Hey, let me tell it. You're getting it all wrong, right? Just sounds weird. Why would you do that? Well, that's exactly what's happening right here. These disciples are telling Jesus about Jesus. And we're saying, they go, just let Jesus talk. (laughs) Why are you telling about him? He knows who he is. You need to know who he is. And so then, look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke writes this, calling us to believe. He's inviting us to believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he's contrasting that with these two disciples. He's saying, you could be one of those disciples, but I warn you not to be. You could be like this disciple who hasn't discovered the truth, but I warn you not to be. I warn you to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross, and that he is alive now. And Jesus goes to the Old Testament from Moses, the the law, all the way through the prophets, every scripture, every prophecy has all been, the entire Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. No one else has, no one else will. He alone. People say, oh, we don't need to study the Old Testament. Yes, we do. It points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And he reveals the promises of the Old Testament. These guys were Jews. They, they learned the Torah. They learned the scriptures since they were kids. They'd heard all this stuff, but it never made sense to them until now. Jesus explains to them, and he reveals that all the promises in the Old Testament are promises of deliverance. And what you just saw with this guy you believed in and trusted, when you saw him die on the cross, it wasn't the end of hope. It was the beginning of hope. It is the beginning of the foundation of the church of the New Testament that Jesus established that we live on and build on. It is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look to the cross, we see his death. But if it had stopped there, no big deal. Without the empty tomb, we don't have life. But it is the life that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God has built his church. Look at verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. He indicated that he would go farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. 
So here, Jesus, they still don't know who he is. He said, look, I'm going to keep going. They said, no, stay with us. It's late. Hey, let's, let's feed you. Stay with us tonight. Uh, we, we just want to hang out. He says, okay, I'll hang out. And so they sit down to eat a meal. It's just a normal meal, which shows us we need to be able to see Jesus in just the everyday life. It's not always a mountaintop experience, not always a valley. Sometimes it's just the mundane, the routine. But Jesus is there too. And so they sit down and, and he takes the bread. And this is not the Lord's Supper. This is not communion, but it kind of reflects that. And he takes the bread, he prays for it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he hands it out. Very reminiscent of the Last Supper that they saw Jesus. And the minute that he hands them the bread, all of a sudden their eyes are open. And they're able to see Jesus for who he is. Like in the picture, the glory is around them. And they see Jesus and they recognize him. And they're astonished, they're amazed, they're speechless. And then he's gone. <laughs> and then they can't see him anymore. And the word that Luke uses here doesn't mean that he disappeared. It just they couldn't see him anymore. He was there. He is just unseen. Because Luke, again, is reiterating the fact that Jesus is everywhere. He may be unseen, but he is there. He is not a ghost. This was not a phantom. This was the resurrected Lord. He is here right now with you, with us. You may not be able to see him. You may not be able to feel him. But the fact is, he is here. And faith makes that connection for us. And so here we see that Luke and Rembrandt really share in this whole idea. Because the beginning of this section where Luke talks about the empty tomb to the end of it where these disciples are now witnesses of what they've seen, it's all about the resurrection. Luke's point in writing this story is to show us very vividly that Jesus is alive. He is not in a grave somewhere. You can't go visit his bones. He is alive. He is here, and he desires a relationship with you. And he invites us all into that relationship. And so after this story, Jesus begins to show up everywhere. And wherever Jesus shows up, despair and discouragement turn into delight. As these disciples and the ones back in Jerusalem, the resurrection is starting to sink into their minds and it's compelling them to respond. Can I just say that that is Luke's point for you today? That the consideration of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, dying on the cross for your sin and mine, being raised by God three days later is something that it needs to sink in for a minute. You need to consider the power of what Luke is writing about. You need to consider the motivation behind why God did what he did with his own son. You need to understand, like these disciples understood, that Jesus is here. He is for you. He desires a relationship with you. And because he is alive, that is possible. So my challenge for you is for you to accept today the truth claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In very simple gospel format, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that he was innocent of any sin, but he became our sin and he died on the cross. Every one of us could have been in that pain, just like Rembrandt, 
It was our sin that drove him to the cross. And three days later, the Father raised him from the dead. The God who is love, the God who is merciful, the God who is gracious, the God who is filled with hope, the God who is a redeeming God, raised his son from the dead so that you and I can have life now and for all of eternity. That's our God. And I pray that you accept who he is. If you don't know how to do that, do you have questions about that? If you're online, in just a minute, a link is going to appear, and you can go to our online connection point. You can give prayer requests. You can, have, you can ask questions. You can set up an appointment. Hey, I want to meet and talk to somebody. If you're on campus, we have a connection point just past the commons here on site. If you have prayer needs, prayer requests, questions, want to set up an appointment, want to know more about what we talked about today, whether on campus or online, we're available for you. You just got to reach out. Luke's point here is that Jesus has invited all of us, not into a religion, not into a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts, but into a relationship with a God who went to the extreme to rescue you from sin and death. And his promise to all of us is he is here. His arms are open wide. His invitation is to all. He's not going to force you. He's not going to trick you. But he is going to receive you, regardless of what you've done. Regardless of the depth of your discouragement. Regardless of the depth of your doubt. Jesus invites all. I pray that you, if you haven't yet, will accept that invitation today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship for just a few minutes. God, I thank you for this story that Luke shares with us. It just highlights for us. That you are a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace. That Jesus died to overcome sin and death, of which we are all guilty. And I pray that, God, that starts with us seeing ourselves as that disciple on the road, needing revelation, needing enlightenment, needing your presence. And you offered all of it. And at that moment, they saw, they believed, and they shared. For those of us who do believe in you, God, and have trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, may we follow their example to go and tell the world our story. That we have seen the risen Lord. Maybe not with our human eyes, but we have no doubt that Jesus is alive. For those of us who have not made that commitment, have not covenant with you in a relationship, may today be that day. They may still have questions, not fully understanding, but Holy Spirit, would you convict their hearts that they need Jesus today? At least to the point they'll ask more questions. At least to the point that they'll, they'll reach out to somebody and say, hey, just tell me some more about this Jesus guy.
And Father, I pray that all over the planet today as people gather on campuses and online that people would be rescued from their sin today. That they would commit to follow Jesus, inviting him to be the leader and the forgiver of their lives so that they may be changed forever. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign in these next few moments to challenge our hearts, to convict our hearts, to crush our hearts, if that's what's necessary. That we might respond to the love of God today. In Jesus' name.